Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In my early days, I was a hunter, one with a deep connection to nature's rhythms. The thrill of the hunt, the camaraderie shared with fellow hunters, the encounters with majestic creatures, all of these were integral parts of my life. I knew the forest like the back of my hand, and my rifle was an extension of myself. I was part of a tradition that spanned generations, a tradition that revered the art of tracking and the thrill of the chase. Yet, as the years went by, I began to witness changes in the world around me. Climate change brought erratic weather patterns, habitat loss accelerated, and the populations of the creatures I once pursued dwindled. I couldn't ignore the signs of a shifting environment, nor the responsibility that seemed to weigh heavier on my shoulders with each passing day. It was during a hunting trip deep in the heart of the wilderness that my perspective began to shift. I had ventured far from civilization, seeking solace in the familiarity of the forest. It was there that I encountered a rare and endangered creature, a glimpse of which seemed like a miracle. Its fur gleamed in the dappled sunlight, and its eyes held a wisdom that belied its vulnerability. In that moment, something within me stirred, a realization that the balance of the natural world was at a critical juncture. My encounter with this magnificent creature triggered a cascade of thoughts. As I gazed into its eyes, I felt a connection that transcended the boundaries of predator and prey. It wasn't just about the ethics of hunting anymore. It was about the larger implications of our actions on the delicate tapestry of life. This encounter marked the beginning of a transformative journey. I knew I couldn't continue as I had before, blind to the consequences of my pursuits. Driven by a desire to make a positive impact, I decided to shift my focus toward conservation efforts. I immersed myself in collaboration with local wildlife experts, researchers, and conservation organizations. 
Together, we endeavored to understand the challenges facing endangered species to protect their habitats and to combat the pervasive threat of poaching. The transition wasn't without its struggles. I faced resistance from my former hunting peers who saw my change in direction as a betrayal of tradition. Skeptics questioned my sincerity, believing my newfound advocacy to be a mere phase. Internally, I grappled with a sense of identity crisis. Who was I now if not the hunter who had roamed these woods for years? But as I ventured deeper into the world of conservation, I began to find my place. I realized that the intricacies of ecosystems were far more fascinating and interconnected than I had ever imagined. The delicate balance required to maintain them was a puzzle that challenged my intellect and my spirit. The joy of witnessing successful conservation efforts, even the smallest victories, ignited a fire within me that I hadn't felt in years. The pivotal moment came during a late-night stakeout in a remote part of the forest. We were monitoring a region known for its endangered species when an eerie stillness settled over the woods. The hairs on the back of my neck stood on end as I felt a presence, a primal sensation that sent a shiver down my spine. And then I saw it, a figure, towering and powerful, standing on two legs like a colossal being from legend. It was Bigfoot, a creature that had eluded scientific explanation for generations. My heart raced, not just from fear, but from a profound sense of awe. The moment was surreal, a testament to the mysteries that still thrived within the wilderness. As Bigfoot disappeared into the night, I knew that my journey had come full circle. The hunter in me had transformed into a guardian, a protector of the delicate balance that sustained life. I had found a new purpose, one that extended beyond the thrill of the hunt. The realization struck me with a force that shook my very being. My role as a conservation advocate was far more impactful than my past identity as a hunter. And so, under the starlit sky, I pledged to continue my mission, to stand between the creatures I once pursued and the threats that sought to erase them. As I walked away from that night's encounter, a sense of gratitude and determination coursed through me. The wilderness had shaped me once as a hunter, and now it was shaping me anew as a protector of its mysteries. I am Sergeant Marcus, a National Guard agent specializing in biochemical threats. When a call came in about a remote research facility in Montana that had gone dark, I was dispatched to investigate. I remember feeling a strange sense of apprehension as we boarded the chopper, the usual humdrum, replaced by a tense silence. None of us had a clue about what we were walking into. The facility was located in a desolate part of Nevada, a bip of concrete and steel in the midst of arid nothingness. We landed just as the sun began to set, bathing the facility in an eerie foreboding glow. We made our way in. Weapons drawn, nerves on edge. The silence was deafening. The complex was a labyrinth of corridors and rooms, all eerily deserted. It was as if the facility's staff had vanished into thin air. We made our way to the central lab, where we found the cause of the radio silence. The room was in complete disarray, papers scattered, lab equipment overturned, and at its center a swirling vortex of energy that pulsed with a sickly light. It was a portal unlike anything I'd ever seen. A low growl echoed through the room, and a creature unlike any I'd ever seen emerged from the portal. It was grotesque, its form defying the laws of nature. Its eyes glowed a malevolent red, and saliva dripped from its gnarled, sharp-toothed mouth. It roared, a sound that shook the very foundations of the facility, and charged at us. We opened fire, bullets tearing into the creature, but it seemed unfazed. More creatures followed, each more horrifying than the last. The facility became a battlefield, the air filled with the sounds of gunfire and the roars of the monstrous beings. But we held our ground, fighting tooth and nail against an enemy we barely understood. 
In the midst of the chaos, our tech specialist, Private Thompson, worked feverishly to reverse, engineer the portal. Sweat poured down his face as he manipulated the alien tech, trying to find a way to close the portal. I covered him, bullets flying from my weapon, each shot taking down a creature. Time seemed to stretch, each second in eternity. Finally, Thompson shouted, I've got it. He hit a button, and the portal began to shrink. The creatures roared in defiance, their hideous faces twisted in rage. But it was too late. The portal collapsed in on itself, leaving nothing but the cold, harsh, fluorescent lights of the lab. We were battered and bruised, but alive. The creatures were gone. The portal closed. The facility was silent once more, but the memory of those creatures of the portal was seared into my mind, a constant reminder of the unknown threats that lurk in the shadows. I am Sergeant Marcus, a National Guard agent. I defended humanity against the threat from another dimension, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. I serve as a park ranger at a park that seems to have far more playground than actual park. This means there's tons of child traffic most days, but of course my most days. This was back in the year of 2018, long before any crazy pandemic of any virus. There was even more on the weekends and on days that school was out. I'm older now, so my kids are grown and gone. So I enjoy my job when I got to see kids nearly every day. They didn't really seem to notice me, though. I just kind of blended into the background, which is why it caught my attention one day when on a very busy weekend, there was a little girl at the far end of the park that was smiling and waving at me. I looked around to make sure she wasn't waving to a friend or a parent or something, but no, she was looking straight at me and waving. I smiled and went back kind of chuckling to myself since most of these kids don't pay me any mind. My mood seemed lighter for the rest of the day after that. The following day, which was Sunday, there was just as much of a population of kids at the playground. They were all scattered about, and I remember, to my surprise, there was that same little girl that had waved at me the day prior. She waved and smiled just as enthusiastically. My heart melted, and I waved back. After all the stuff I saw in various areas of law enforcement spanned over the years, things like that restored my faith in humanity. I got two days off and came back on a Wednesday, making my rounds as usual. There were some kids, just not as many, a very common feat during the weekend and weekday. But I came back to that one playground and there was that still that same little girl smiling. She was always wearing that same outfit, and she was standing in the exact same spot. That's when I began to feel differently and even felt an open pit in my stomach. So I smiled and waved back to her when I noticed that she never stopped smiling or waving. The only thing that seemed to have changed is that she was smiling bigger than the very first time that I saw her, and maybe she seemed more thin. She was near back to a cluster of bushes that seemed to be right next to the general area, but were actually a bit further back. I decided to approach her to see what the real issue was, and as I did, I was hit with a horrifying odor, the stench of death and rotting flesh. There's a rope that was tied around her neck and her left arm in such a way that she would stand upright and have her arm raised slightly when the bush swayed in the breeze. She looked like she was waving. Without getting into any gruesome details, she had been horribly mutilated to show that she was smiling and waving again. Since I dealt with children, this made me disgusted. I got very dizzy and I had to sit down. How was I the only one who had seen her since Saturday? I immediately called out and filed a report. Even my superiors thought my story was strange and even suspicious, because they too wondered how I was the only one who had seen her. I wish I had a better explanation, and I feel like there were two deaths during the whole situation, hers and my faith in people. I walked about a mile from home to go mushroom hunting in a usual area, walked through a field of goldenrod as high as my shoulders, and was about to enter the woods when I felt something strange. 
I felt like I needed to go or I wouldn't get out of there alive. I didn't hear or see anything, but I had got goosebumps and I felt anxious when everything was fine before I reached that spot. I stood there debating and decided to go hunt somewhere else. I've gone back many times and haven't experienced that again. I live in an area that have bears, wolves, coyotes, and bobcats. I've never had any problems with them on walks or hikes in the woods, but maybe that day would have been different. Or maybe there was a bad person in there. I've learned to trust this feeling I get. It saved me many times. And when I ignored it, I got hurt. Whatever was in there, I did the right thing and not going in. It was the end of August, a perfect time for a vacation, and I, Donald, had decided to indulge my hobby of prospecting for gold. So there I was on the Chetco River, about 18 miles northeast of Brookings, hoping to strike it rich. And guess what? I found a vein. But that's not the story I want to tell you. What happened next was far more exciting and much more terrifying. After a day of exploring the area, driving the dirt roads in my trusty old Jeep, I decided to take a break. I parked the Jeep by the road to let the engine cool. The very dry and steep slope lined with thick brush just a few feet away. Visibility into the undergrowth was no more than 15 feet, but it was peaceful, serene. Then, without warning, the tranquility was shattered. Something charged at me through the brush. I couldn't see what it was, but I could hear it, a rustling sound that grew louder and closer. Then, just as suddenly as it had started, it stopped. Whatever it was, it was lurking in the brush. About thirty-five feet away, I could hear it moving, but I couldn't see it. My heart was pounding in my chest, and I felt a cold rush of adrenaline. Thoughts raced through my mind. Was it a bear? An elk? Or something else? I couldn't shake off the feeling of dread. I needed to protect myself. I rushed to the trunk of my jeep and pulled out my magnum gun. I'm ready for you, I muttered, trying to sound braver than I felt. But nothing happened. Whatever it was, it didn't come any closer. The confrontation, if you can call it that, lasted about three to four minutes. But it felt like an eternity. Shaken by the experience, I decided to consult a local park ranger. A friend had introduced me to Ranger Ben a grizzled veteran who knew the area like the back of his hand. We discussed the possibility of another animal, bear, elk, or even a cougar. But Ben wasn't so sure. You know, he said, leaning back in his chair, there are stories around these parts. Stories about a creature living deep in the woods. Some call it Bigfoot. I scoffed at the idea. But deep down, the unease lingered. Was it possible? Had I had a confrontation with Bigfoot, I guess I'll never know. But one thing's for sure, that vacation was one I'll never forget. This incident happened back in 1995 when I was 15 years old. It was very horrible. I witnessed two guys that may have been like government agents or some other secretive governmental agents. They kidnapped my dad and left someone in his place that looked just like him. I later found out that the person left behind was a reptilian cloaked as a human. This person became rather rude to me as time went on. However, he talked with me and he could even heal with his bare hands. He told me that we humans were looked down upon as sheep, etc., and he knew I had witnessed the two agents kidnapping my dad, and he said I was next. I became very scared. He had me taken to a place against my will and met with what looked like a special forces group who forced me to sign paperwork against my will, and the guy who looked identical to my dad was standing there. I was spying on him one night and saw what looked like a snake's tongue come out of his mouth. I later discovered he was a reptilian, a very short human who looked like a midget was helping him. I think he was a gray-cloaked human. I heard them talk in English, but then started talking in alien lingo, which sounded kind of Far Eastern. Yes, I am here to tell you they can cloak and simulate our world undercover. 
My real dad, the one I saw whisked away, was retired military, and I often suspected him of doing something or being involved with the government or doing something secretive that may have led to all this happening to me. I also found implants that feel like something under my skin. One was an upside-down triangle or diamond shape. They also stabbed me and then heated me with their eyes, which left a very weird scar on my leg. I never told anyone as I was so scared of how these entities seemed to be able to operate with impunity and like nothing could stop them. They also conducted very horrible activities and what seemed like mental brainwashing experiments on me. After all these years, I'm still scared to this day, but I believe it was time to come forward. I just wonder what happened to my real dad. My family and I had decided to take a trip to New Orleans, the city of jazz, voodoo, and legends. We checked into an old, historic hotel in the heart of the city, excited to experience the unique atmosphere that surrounded us. One night, after a day of exploring the city, my dad and I settled into bed, the room enveloped in darkness. The only light seeping in was from the lampposts outside, casting eerie, dancing shadows on the walls. My dad was already sound asleep, his steady breathing a comforting presence in the room. I lay facing his back, my thoughts meandering through the events of the day. Restless, I rolled over to face the other side of the room. That's when I saw it, a shadowy figure of a man wearing a hat and a long coat, clutching a briefcase. I strained my eyes, but his face remained indiscernible, as if he were an outline or a shadow rather than a physical presence. He just stood there, still and silent, an eerie sentinel in the dark. Panic surged through me, and I wondered if I was experiencing sleep paralysis. But as I shifted my body, blinked my eyes, I realized I could still move. My heart raced, my mind grasping for an explanation. Was it a trick of the light? A figment of my imagination? The figure remained, an unwelcome intruder in the room. I never experienced anything like that again. But the memory of that night in New Orleans has lingered, a chilling reminder of the unknown. I've shared my story, curious to know if others have encountered something similar. What was it that I saw that night? A specter from the past or just a figment of my imagination? The answer remains shrouded in mystery. The day after my girlfriend and I saw the Mothman prophecies in the movie theater, we found ourselves driving up a road situated in the middle of Jefferson City, Missouri. The movie was still fresh in our minds, and we couldn't help but feel a bit on edge. As we made our way up the big hill on Southwest Boulevard, an unexpected event took place. Out of nowhere, a bird-like creature that bore an uncanny resemblance to the one from the movie suddenly bounced off my windshield. The impact startled both of us, and I remember thinking that I had never seen anything quite like it before. Right when the creature hit my windshield, my girlfriend cried out, Ho! Oh. The first thing that crossed my mind was how much it reminded me of the bird-like thing from the movie. Just as I was thinking that, my girlfriend said, that looked like the thing in the Mothman prophecies. Though it wasn't the seven-foot humanoid creature with red eyes and wings that the movie depicted, it still left us feeling uneasy. I couldn't bring myself to look back and see what happened to whatever it was that hit the windshield, nor did I have the nerve to stop and investigate. Maybe I was too freaked out, or perhaps I was worried about what I might find. To this day, I still wonder about the peculiar sighting in Jefferson City, Missouri. Whether it was a mere coincidence or something more inexplicable, the experience remains etched in my memory, serving as a reminder that there are still mysteries in this world that defy explanation. So this guy had been abused as a child by his uncle. When he started talking about him sober, his face would scrunch up. He would talk through his teeth like hissing, like spitting as he talked. He would only do this sober. When he was high, he didn't care anymore. That was the point of the drugs. One night, we were having a hard time getting drugs. We hadn't had. 
any since the day before, so quite sober for the two of us. This is a guy who threw me through a closet door just a few weeks prior. He was violent, yelled. Name called, he hurt me a few times pretty good. But I was really messed up back then. It had already gotten to the point where I knew the end was near. It was time for me to get my life together and certainly time for me to get away from that a whole. I was standing on the edge of the cliff, just about to jump. Then that night, when he realized no one had any dope and he wasn't going to get any, he started talking about his uncle. We were sitting in the bed, facing the TV at the foot of the bed, so I was turning my head to the right, looking at him as he talked. It started calm and quickly escalated into the spitting, angry talk. He started hitting the bed in front of him with his fist as he raged, and I was terrified to look at him. I stared forward for what seemed like forever. Then, for whatever reason, I turned to look at him, and I saw exactly as you described. It was like a face over a face, or a face behind a face, and it wasn't human, and it wasn't good. I can't put into words the terror. It consumed my whole body. I've never felt that level of fear, and I hope I'd never do again. I jumped up from that bed and ran. I had a bicycle sitting outside on the porch. I grabbed that friggin' bike and mounted it in the front yard and pedaled into the street. I could hear him busting through the front door and his footsteps as he started running after me. He yelled at me, I swear to God I'm going to beat the F out of you when I catch you. I'm going to beat the shit out of you. And he growled as he ran after me. There was that moment when I didn't have the bike going fast yet and was still accelerating, and he almost caught up. Then I reached speed and left him behind. I was praying that my bike chain held on. It liked to fall off if I tried to accelerate too fast. Somehow, it didn't fail me. I made arrangements for inpatient rehab that weekend. They had a bed open up the following Monday, and I've been sober ever since. That was May of 2006. I've told the devil face story many times since then. I know what I saw. It was pure evil. I don't need any more convincing that evil can possess people. He definitely was. I probably was, too. The devil loves chaos. And despair, fear, anger, violence. You get the picture. I choose today to distance myself from anything that resembles any of that. Thanks for the reminder. I haven't thought about him for a while. I need to be reminded. The devil is real and I have a choice where I want to go. If I follow the rules, I get the good stuff, and if I don't, well, I've seen a glimpse of it, and no thank you. I decided to try a creek in the Cohutas, North Georgia, where three creeks merged at around 2,600, hoping to catch trout or one of the local bass species. After driving to the location, spending quite a bit of time on dirt roads to get to there, it is very clear based on the overgrown parking lot and lack of trash or other signs of humans that this was not a frequently used trail. At the start of the trip, that's exactly what I was hoping for. As I begin to head down the trail, it becomes pretty clear the descent is much steeper than I expected from Google Maps. After descending roughly 800 over the stretch of a half mile, I'm already nearing what I think is the end of trout water. But as I mentioned earlier, they have black bass species that live only in this area to target as well. The trail is completely flattened out and parallels the river, which has several creeks feeding into from higher elevations, giving me hope the water will be cold enough. For the first two miles, the creek is too narrow and shallow for me to even consider trying to fish it. As I make it further in, eventually enough creeks have merged that the water is consistently at least six inches deep. With little pools, maybe a foot deep stream is about six, ten feet wide. Once I reached this point, I began to fish the creek anywhere I could feasibly bushwhack to the bank. There weren't many spots I was able to do this. The whole time I'm hiking and fishing, I'm keeping an eye out for any tracks or signs of bear activity, still a little on edge from running into a few the week prior and knowing that the next person to come along won't just be ten minutes away like last week. Around the five-mile mark, I see my first sign that anything else has ever been out there. It's a track 
three feet long, four fingers, two pads on the heel, no claws. Another fifty feet, another trek. Fifty feet past that I come up to a two feet tall game trail that appears to lead to a bedding area for something. I'd assumed the track belonged to a bobcat or coyote. No claws makes me think cat, but I'd think it was on the big side for a bobcat. At this point, I hadn't had a bite and decided to head back to the truck. I reach the bottom of the hill to climb back the last stretch. I see a bad sign. The third set of tracks. I see all day that are not mine or the ones I previously described belong to a bear. Two tracks. Several trees in the area have also had pieces of bark ripped off. Saplings were ripped up. Now all of the missing bark was facing downhill. So I convinced myself I just wasn't able to see it earlier. And I must have missed the tracks. This is about all I can come up with since that trail up is the only way out. Not even five steps into my ascent, I found the bear. As I was ninety degrees with a bush to my left, it roared, and at least in my head, the entire bush shook when he did. I was close enough to touch the bush with my left arm. Unlike previous bear encounters at distance, where I was able to calmly stand my ground and then back off when that didn't work, I completely panicked. My first reaction was to turn my back to the bear and run before realizing what I was doing. As soon as I caught myself, I tuned back towards it, stood tall, arms out, and trying to talk as normally as possible as I retreated back 100 feet. As I'm standing here, I quickly realize I'm at a low spot on all four sides with zero visibility forward, backwards, or to my left, two of the three directions I'd assume the bear would come from if it were to advance on me. Moving to my right by about 30 feet puts me on slightly higher ground, but also takes me off the trail and most likely further reduces my visibility. I decide standing right where I was while everything cooled down was not any better or worse than anything else I could do. After waiting 30 minutes on my watch after the initial bear encounter, I have not heard the bear in a while. I decide to test with a rock throw in its direction since I'm getting pretty tired of the calling. The bear very loudly lets me know it is still there. I remember how remote the area is and that I did not see a single track or sign showing human life had ever been on the five miles I walked. Another 30 minutes go by, both the fastest and slowest 30 minutes of my life. I repeat the process and it plays out exactly the same way. Except five minutes later, I hear the bear snort just a little to the left of where it had been. I wait another 20 minutes or so, and now something has changed. I try throwing a rock at the bear again, no reaction. I think I held it together walking past where the bear was, and then ran a two-minute half-mile straight uphill. With only five creek chubs to show for the whole ordeal, I will never be back to that area again. When I was a teenager, a guy was screaming for help in the woods. I still remember I just got home from a friend's. It was around 8 p.m. My parents kept trying to yell back hello, and we are here things of that nature. He wouldn't respond. Just intermediate calls for help. When I first heard his scream, I immediately ran and hid in my bedroom. It was a blood-curdling scream. Gives me chills just thinking about it. Filled me with fear just hearing his scream. The next day, everyone searched the woods and found nothing. Nothing was ever in the news. I will never understand. Why didn't he yell back? Where did he come from? We lived in the middle of nowhere. No close neighbors. Sometimes I think he was trying to lure us in. He would have seen our lights from our house. The woods was a hill. Back in college, I entered a tournament as a co-angler on Rodman Reservoir in Ocala National Forest. Boulder told me to meet him at the lake at 5 a.m. I hit the road around 3.30 a.m. Should put me there about 15 minutes early. I'm driving through Ocala National Forest, and the fog this particulate morning is thick. I'm probably driving 30 in a 55 due to the limited visibility. I come around a corner, and all of a sudden, I see the whitest lady I've ever seen in my life walking towards me in the lane. 
clearly just substance abuse going on, but could easily pay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As for a zombie ghost, I pull into the oncoming traffic lane and hit my brakes to miss her. I come to a stop about 15 feet past her and watch her turn around like a zombie and start walking towards my truck. I went ahead and got out of there. Since then, I've had a similar thing happen in almost the same area with a regular-looking guy that appeared to have a bit too much to drink. Another time, guy just crossing the road around midnight, no vehicles around. I've got several buddies that have similar stories of people walking in the oncoming lane, seemingly in the middle of nowhere out in the Okala National Forest, and they had to swerve to miss them. Weird thing is, it always seems to happen five, ten miles from the closest building that shows up on the map, and these aren't hikers. No clue what these people are doing out there. It all started on a quiet summer night in Wisconsin. I was visiting a friend's cabin deep in the woods, away from the hustle and bustle of city life. It was a perfect escape. Or so I thought. We were sitting around the campfire, swapping stories and laughing, when suddenly I felt a strange sensation. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but it was as if we were being watched. I scanned the dark forest around us, but saw nothing out of the ordinary. Later that night, as I was walking back to the cabin from the outhouse, I caught a glimpse of something that sent a shiver down my spine. Red glowing eyes stared at me from the darkness, watching my every move. I couldn't see the creature's body, but the intensity of its gaze was enough to make me hurry back to the safety of the cabin. I didn't mention the encounter to my friends, not wanting to scare them or be labeled as a paranoid city slicker. But the image of those red eyes haunted me for the remainder of the trip. A few years later, I found myself in Pennsylvania on a camping trip with some buddies. We had chosen a remote location, surrounded by dense woods and miles from the nearest town. Once again, I felt that familiar sense of being watched, and my mind drifted back to that night in Wisconsin. As the sun dipped below the horizon, we huddled around the campfire, its warm glow providing some comfort against the encroaching darkness. We chatted and roasted marshmallows, trying to ignore the eerie stillness of the woods around us. When nature called, I hesitated, remembering my previous encounter. But eventually, I couldn't put it off any longer. As I ventured away from the campsite, I couldn't shake the feeling of being followed. And then, it happened again. Those same red glowing eyes appeared in the darkness, watching me intently. I stood there, frozen in fear, my heart pounding in my chest. The creature remained hidden, its body obscured by the shadows. But something told me it was a dogman, a legendary creature said to roam the woods of the Midwest and the East Coast. If I had seen its body, I'm sure I would be even more terrified than I already was. I hurried back to the campsite, my mind racing with thoughts of the mysterious creature. I shared my encounter with my friends this time, and we decided to pack up and leave first thing in the morning. To this day, I can't help but wonder what might have happened if I'd seen the full form of the creature with the red glowing eyes. Would I be more heavily affected by the encounters, unable to enjoy the serenity of the woods? Or would I have come face to face with a legend, forever changing my perception of the unknown? All I know for sure is that those two encounters have left me with a deep respect for the mysteries that still linger in the wilderness, a reminder that we may never fully understand the secrets that lie hidden in the shadows. My name is John, and I'm part of a National Guard unit assigned to protect the small town of Smallville, situated near a dense forest. 
The town had become the epicenter of a series of brutal attacks, and it was our job to protect the residents and track down the perpetrator. As we investigated the crime scenes, we found evidence of an unknown cryptid, which we suspected to be the legendary dogman. To aid in our search, we enlisted the help of a renowned cryptozoologist who had dedicated his life to studying these elusive creatures. Together, we delved deep into the surrounding woods, determined to confront the creature and put an end to the carnage. As we got closer to the truth, we uncovered a long-buried secret about the government's involvement in the creation and cover-up of these creatures. It was a chilling revelation that made us question everything we thought we knew about the world around us. One night, while we were searching for the creature, we heard blood-curdling screams echoing from the small town. Rushing back, our hearts pounded in our chests as we realized the horrifying truth. The entire town was gone, and all its inhabitants had been mercilessly killed. We were devastated and felt an overwhelming sense of guilt, knowing that we had failed to protect the people we had been assigned to safeguard. But before we could even begin to process what had happened, government officials arrived at the scene. They quickly quarantined the area and ordered us to return home, offering no explanation or consolation. We left Smallville with heavy hearts, haunted by the loss of an entire community, and the knowledge that we had been so close to uncovering the truth about the dogman. The government had successfully silenced us and covered up their dark secrets, but the memory of Smallville and its people would remain with us forever. It all began when the whisper of chainsaws echoed through the sacred lands of my people, the Comanche tribe. I'm Alaway, which means pea in our language, a reminder of how small we are in the grand scheme of things. Little did I know, the grand scheme had a cruel twist in store for us. Our ancestral lands, once lush with ancient trees and teeming with life, were being violated by a ruthless logging company. Every fallen tree seemed to resonate with a piercing cry, reverberating through the air, through my heart. And then we noticed it, the increase in sightings of a malicious skinwalker. The skinwalker, a creature of Navajo legend, was known to shape, shift, and bring harm. It was an entity of pure malevolence, a perversion of nature. It began to terrorize the loggers who were far from their comfort zones and their high-rise offices. The assaults from the creature were so relentless, so terrifying, that the company halted its operations. Our tribe was relieved, at least initially. But then the attacks escalated. It started with livestock. Sheep and cows mutilated their carcasses left as a gruesome warning. Then our people started disappearing. Our tribe, once vibrant and strong, was being decimated. Fear clung to us like a shroud. Elders prayed. Warriors stood guard. Children cried. But nothing stopped the skinwalker. One by one, my people fell, their lives snuffed out by this ancient terror. Until I was the only one left, the skinwalker had taken everyone. My family, my friends, the old, the young. I was alone, the last of my tribe, left to bear witness to our tragic end. The government arrived in the aftermath. Men in suits and uniforms swarmed our lands, their faces grim. They quarantined the area, erected barriers, and shrouded our tragedy under the guise of a disease outbreak. They found me grief-stricken lost, and they told me to be silent. To hide the truth of the skinwalker, the reality of our ancestral lands, and the massacre of my people. The world continued on, oblivious to our fate, ignorant of the truth. I became Alawa, the lone survivor of the Comanche tribe, the guardian of a tragic secret, a living testament to a tale too horrific to be believed. But I remember, I remember it all. I was working as a park ranger this one time when I heard something pretty weird from one of the campers. It was low season and we only had a few bookings. One, a group of Boy Scouts and their two leaders who were both middle-aged moms, 
two, a very small church group, all female. In three, two college girls who had been doing some sort of nature photography shooting research had appeared. So, a lot of females aside from a small group of young boy scouts. There were around five of them, and I'd say they were all preteen, and that's important to note for the story. You see, in the morning, while the scouts were cooking their breakfast and the church ladies were doing their prayer circle, one of the college girls came storming over to the office, making and filing a complaint. She said that there had been a man outside their tent during the night. They knew it was a man as he mumbled a couple of things and laughed. He'd had apparently a very deep voice. She said he was drunk and that he had urinated on the side of the tent. Again, not only from the voice, but the height of where the urine had hit the tent. They known it was a guy and not one of the little boys. Sure enough, I headed over to their tent at the location. They said it happened, and sure enough, there was a strong smell of human urine. There were also three empty beer cans on the floor and multiple cigarette butts. No one on that site claimed to have brought any alcohol with them, and none of them seemed like secret drinkers. And there had been no cider smell of tobacco. Thing is, our campsite is miles away from anywhere. You would have to drive to get here. And there were no obvious signs of anybody else coming on to or through the site. It was enough to freak everybody out, and they all packed up and left. Can't say I blame them. We kept watch overnight for the next week or so, but never saw anything and never had any more complaints. Maybe the girls just made the whole thing up. I don't know. It didn't feel like it, though. In between the beer cans, cigarettes, and urine smell, it seems like a lot to waste your time on and a lot of a story to build up for what. The night was thick, and the only light that pierced through the darkness was the flickering flames from our campfire. The calm serenity of the lake mirrored the starry night sky, creating a tranquil ambience that was often sought but seldom found. We were surrounded by the deep woods, the lake stretching out before us. Suddenly the tranquility was broken by a strange noise from across the lake. It was a distant rustle, an unusual sound that didn't fit the usual nighttime symphony of insects and nocturnal creatures. We hastily fed the fire, coaxing it to grow brighter illuminating the surrounding landscape with its warm orange glow. Just as the fire grew stronger, so did the noises. Something was over there, something big. We could hear it crashing through the underbrush, snapping branches and rustling leaves. Then came the rocks and logs lobbed in our direction with an incredible force, splashing into the lake and thudding around our campsite. The fire cast monstrous shadows that danced and twisted with each explosive splash and thud. And then the screams began. They were unlike anything I had ever heard before. I have spent my entire life in the woods, hunting, exploring, living. I've heard the cries of bobcats, the hoots of owls, the howls of wolves. But this, this was different. It was a guttural, primal sound that resonated through the forest, sending a chill down my spine. The screams and the onslaught of debris continued for a harrowing hour. Each minute was stretched by the adrenaline pumping through our veins, making every second feel like an eternity. But then, just as suddenly it had begun, everything went silent. The only sound left was the crackling of our fire and our own heavy breathing. We were left in the strange quiet of the night, the echoes of the creature's screams still ringing in our ears. The experience was unnerving, to say the least. Whatever had been out there was clearly powerful, and its cries still haunt me. It was a reminder that even though I've spent a lifetime in these woods, there are still mysteries here that I've yet to uncover. I have heard the story of the Quaker man who left Philadelphia to start a new life in the mountains of Pennsylvania. He was a man of strong faith, and after purchasing a large lot in Cook Township, he found employment at the Old South Mountain Iron Works. The land was perfect for him, with a stream full of brook trout, plentiful timber, and lots of open space to raise a family. He soon met a young woman and fell deeply in love with her. 
They were married by the local justice of the peace, despite the fact that she was not of the same religious faith as he was. However, they were happy together, and she soon became pregnant. In the final month of her pregnancy, the young wife began to experience bouts of anger and intense pain. The doctor could not diagnose the cause of her malady and ordered her to complete bed rest. The Quaker had a horrible dream that the devil had come to visit their home while he was at work. He was sure that his wife was possessed by a demonic being and that he needed to purge her of this evil. For ten days straight he knelt by her bedside, invoking prayers and charms, much to the chagrin of his wife. However, his wife soon became disgusted by the fuss her husband was making. In a fit of rage, she grabbed a small wooden cross and flung it out of the window. She declared that there was no God and that the devil was only a creation of a feeble mind. That very night, the Quaker's wife went into labor. She told in agony for the entire night and into the early morning. A midwife was quickly summoned for the delivery. Soon after daybreak, the child started its way into the world. As the midwife coaxed the new mother to push, it soon became apparent that this child was unlike any she had ever witnessed. The newborn boys resembled a beast, not a human. It was alive and breathing, but did not cry or make any sound. It was gray in color and had more scales than skin. It had a long tail and small horn buds above its pointed ears. There were claws for hands and hooves for feet. It also emitted a foul, lingering stench. This was the embodiment of Mephistopheles. The Quaker was horrified and could not believe that this was his child. He refused to even touch it. The midwife, who had seen many things in her time, was shocked and did not know what to do. The child lived for only a few minutes before passing away. The Quaker's wife died soon after giving birth. The Quaker was left alone with his thoughts and his beliefs. He eventually left the mountains and returned to Philadelphia, where he tried to reconcile his faith with the terrible thing that had happened to him. The story of the Quaker and his wife has been passed down through generations. Some say it was a curse. Others say it was a punishment for the wife's blasphemy. But the truth remains a mystery, lost to time and to the mountains of Pennsylvania. Okay, this happened a couple of years ago before we turned 18 and before uni started, so we had a lot of spare time and nowhere to spend it, so my friends and I would often just walk around our town at night talking about random stuff. On the night in question, it was just me and one friend, and we were just walking without really paying attention to where we were going since we were in pretty deep conversation. We found ourselves walking towards an entrance to a footpath that's behind an estate. There's a fork in the path, and going left will eventually take you to the high street and a train station. Going right will take you to some fields behind a cemetery. We went right, which sounds like a dumb idea, but it made sense at the time, because you could get into the cemetery through the fields and then onto the estate, where we lived by coming out of the cemetery. Initially, I didn't even want to go down the path in the first place. I'm scared of the dark and generally would rather not walk through a graveyard and a bunch of creepy forests, paths at night. My friend reassured me, though, and after all, it was the quickest way home. About five minutes in, the path leads through a small wooded area, and after that, there is the gate that opens into the cemetery. It's really dark in this part, except for some distant lights from houses, allowing you to see a little bit in front of you. That's when we saw a figure in the distance, walking towards us. From what I could make out, it just looked like one guy, probably a similar age to us, because teens would often use this path to get from one estate to the other. I quietly told my friend that, and he agreed. We weren't worried because while there are some bad kids in our area, people don't really give you any trouble when they're on their own, as the person walked closer to us. In us to them, I realized it was not a teenager, but a really tall man. Trying to calm myself, I remembered a tall guy I see a lot walking his dog, a big Alsatian. Yes, it must be him. I scanned the area for his dog, but I saw nothing. However, the man was holding something long in his hand. 
I thought it was a lead for his dog, but it wasn't flexible in, in the dark and in my paranoid state. I thought it looked like the handle of an axe or a spade. My friend and I hadn't said a word since the man got close, but I just knew he was thinking the exact same thing as me. I didn't want the man to notice that I was staring at him, so I just looked down and walked as fast as I could without running. Thankfully, the gate was right there, and once we got into the cemetery, we felt safe. Once we got out into the open, we started talking about what we saw, and my friend agreed. It looked like an axe or a really big stick and said, I was expecting to get a blow to the head as soon as we got near him. I babbled a bit. Sorry, but I certainly stay away from dark paths now. Hello all. I wanted to share these two stories I have from my childhood that have always stuck with me and still creep me out to this day. Story 1. This story is short but makes me feel uneasy nonetheless. I was in kindergarten as Mrs. Quigley's class. I loved her when she got a call from the office that someone was there to pick me up. I think this was before the time of like emergency contact forms with designated people to sign you out because this happened so long ago. I can't remember if there was a name given or not, but I do remember being five years old and not feeling right. I told Mrs. Quigley I didn't know that person and didn't want to go with them. She didn't make me, and I rode the bus home as usual that day. I can't help but think that situation was something bad because I don't remember it ever being a problem that I didn't get picked up that day. Like it wasn't planned and it wasn't inconvenient that I didn't go with them. Story 2. My cousin and I were playing outside in a wooded area near her house. And this wooded area was also next to a road. I just remember we were playing in there. Then this pickup truck stopped on the road next to us. I don't remember what he said. I just remember taking off and my cousin tripping over a branch and falling. I was too scared to help her. Back when I was younger, around 12, 13, my three friends and I, also the same age, had a fort right at the tree line by some woods near our neighborhood. Right next to the tree line was a series of fields used for sports. So technically, our fort was on that property and not the woods. Separating the woods from the fields was a large chain-link fence. One day after a large storm, one of the trees from our fort was knocked over leaning against the fence. Naturally, as kids, we thought that was awesome, except for ruining part of the fort. We all climbed up on the tree, sat on it, and whatnot. After some time, we were just sitting there having a conversation when I noticed one of my friends, who was not on the tree, was looking kind of past us. On the other side of the fence, Buck guys, he said in a shaky tone. We all turned around, and on the other side of the fence, about 20 feet away, was an old man. He was dressed in tattered clothes, including a newsboy hat. He looked to be in his mid-fifties to sixty. He stood there smiling at us. I definitely sensed some malicious intent with him, which is creepy in itself. But the part that gets me the most was how long he must have been there watching us, easily fifteen, twenty minutes before my friend noticed. In what seemed like forever, none of us spoke, and all we could do was stare back at him. My adrenaline kicked in, and my reaction was to just run away, where my friends also followed. After a few minutes or so, we gained the courage to go back, and when we did, he was gone. It kind of scared us, and we really never went back to that fort. Now the fence is replaced, and the fort is gone, but, but my friends and I will never forget that creepy man. I was about 16 years old at home alone for the night. I fell asleep just fine, but I woke up later at around 3. I couldn't fall back asleep, and then I started hearing this weird high-pitched ring in my ears. It kept getting louder, and then out of nowhere, my door starts creaking open. It's the loudest door on earth, and I hear really slow, dragging footsteps walking into my room. 
I turned to see if anyone was there, and the doorway is completely empty, and I heard the footsteps start moving toward my bed with the ringing in my ears getting louder. I flipped out and rolled over, facing away from the footsteps, feeling pretty helpless. I thought it went away when I heard the stepping stop until I felt something sit on my bed. I honestly have never prayed harder in my life. Eventually, it just kind of stopped all at once, and I just laid there wide awake for the rest of the night. I told my mom about it a day later, and she said that she used to hear the same dragging footsteps, too. I changed rooms away from the basement after that. When I was around eight years old, my family and I lived in this old house that always gave me the creeps especially this one room that was kept as our study. Every time I'd walk in or pass this room, I just felt yucky and had the most intense feeling that I was being watched by someone that hated me being in there. Anyways, fast forward a few months, and my father decided that he was going to make the study room mine as I was sharing a room with my younger brother. I begged him to give it to my younger brother instead. I was the eldest, so I should get to pick. Mm, had not ended up being my room. First night in this room ended up being my last. This part I remember like it was literally yesterday. My dad came in and said good night and proceeded to turn off my bedroom light. As soon as he left the room, I felt that intense foreboding feeling I'd had had every other time I had been in this room. Except that this time I was different. It was like I could feel a set of eyes on me. I pulled my blankets up over me as I was that scared. After about 30 seconds, the blankets started being pulled down and left me staring into my room with no apparent reason or cause. I looked around quickly and then pulled the blankets back over my head and again. Blankets started to be pulled off me. By this stage, I was scared out of my wits. I remember telling myself that it was probably just my cat playing around, but I looked under my bed and around the room, and my cat was not in my room. I then told myself that I'm going to pull the blankets back up over my head, but if something starts to pull off my blankets, then I'm out of here. No matter what my father says, I pulled the blankets back over my head slowly whilst looking around the room for anything that could be doing this to me. After another 30 seconds... My blankets began to be pulled off me, and this time I booked it out of my room so fast it was unreal. By this stage, I was in tears of fear, and my dad couldn't console or convince me to go back into that room. This all is 100% true, and I remember it like it happened a week ago, when it was in fact well over 20 years ago. Also, my brother and I had reoccurring night terrors in this house. Someone broke into the house, and they broke in by smashing the window to the study. Room, the room that was foreboding and haunted, they, however, cut themselves so severely on the window of the study room that they left empty-handed. There was loads of blood all over the window and side of the house where they had tried to crawl in through the smashed window and into the study room. That room was just wrong. My family lived in Vermont for several years, in a small town called Northfield, south of Montpellier. There's a local legend in Northfield of a thing known as the Pigman. The story has multiple versions, as most do, but some parts are always the same. Back in 1951, the night before Halloween, this 17-year-old kid named Sam Harris went out on his own with a basket of eggs to cause some mischief. Nobody knows exactly what happened to him, just that he never came home and was never found. Years later, some high school kids were out drinking behind the school one night during a dance when this thing came walking out of the woods on two human legs. It was naked, covered in white hair, and was wearing a hollowed-out pig's head like some grotesque mask. Naturally, the kids tore out of there and went and told people. Word spread and some farmer admitted he'd seen a figure matching that description digging through his garbage one night. Some pigs had also gone missing recently. More sightings were made of the pigman as it became known, but many times the claims were just kids wanting to get attention. Now, whether this thing is Sam Harris or this thing is Sam Harris, nobody in town knows for sure. 
But what they do know is that it isn't afraid of people, and it really likes to eat meat. There's a place just outside of Northfield known as the Devil's Wash Bowl, with a river and waterfalls and several caves. After more sightings of the pigmen were made out by the wash bowl, some people went investigating and found that one cave in particular was littered with animal bones, some of which were pigs. It got around that they'd found the lair of the pigmen, and it became popular for teens to go out to the devil's wash bowl at night and try to catch sight of him. My sister and a couple of her friends went out to the devil's wash bowl their senior year. They took sleeping bags and flashlights and all the gear you'd take to go camping. I wasn't there to give a first-hand account of what transpired. I was only eight at the time. I can only tell you what was told to me. There were six or eight of them, depending on who you ask. All couples. They picked several caves. One for each pair. My sister and her boyfriend were in their cave. She was rolling out their sleeping bags, and he was trying to start a fire when they heard some shouts and then screaming from one of the other caves. When they got there, the girl was curled up in a ball in the farthest corner of the cave, and her boyfriend was nowhere to be found. She told them that the pigmen had come trudging into their cave, completely undaunted by their presence. The guy had started shouting at it, both to drive it away and to get the other's attention. The pigman casually picked up a large rock and struck the guy in the side of the head with it, knocking him unconscious. It picked him up, slung him over its shoulder, and shambled out of the cave just moments before the rest arrived. Nobody had seen it exit the cave, nor seen signs of it at all. They did find the rock lying on the cave floor with blood on it and bare footprints in some soft creek mud outside. The girls all drove into town and went straight to the police. The remaining boys, whether it was two or three of them, grabbed flashlights and makeshift weapons and scoured the woods around the area. The footprints disappeared at the edge of the road, and they lost the trail there. Search parties were set up, police in nine units in a big coordinated effort, including several other adjoining townships' police forces. A couple days later, some articles of the guy's clothes were found by a search dog. They'd been left torn and scattered in an abandoned farmhouse a town over. The missing teen's photo was put up in the area, and one guy came forward. He said the other night he'd awakened to the sound of someone lurking outside his house. He checked out his kitchen window, and someone was rummaging through the trash can by his garage. The person was only wearing a faded and ripped pair of jeans. When a man hit the porch light, the intruder looked up and looked just like the kid in the photo. The only difference was that his body was covered with white hair and his eyes looked kind of hollow.